This is Christian Knutson and Nick Dodge with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers was inaugurated for a second term in office today, along with other state officials and legislators who were elected in November. We'll have more about today's inauguration festivities, which continue tonight with a gala at the Monona Terrace in a few minutes. But as the results of one election settle, the state is already on to the next. Today is the filing deadline for candidates who plan to run for local elected office this spring. According to online filings, a third candidate for mayor of Madison has entered the fray between incumbent Satya Rhodes Conway and challenger Gloria Reyes. His name is Scott Kerr. Meanwhile, eight races for Madison Common Council seats will have three or more candidates on the ballot. That means that those races will have a primary in February, and the top two finishers will compete head-to-head in April. WORT will be interviewing the candidates running for local office in the weeks ahead. Stay tuned. Speaking of local politics, more spring election battles are brewing in the southeastern corner of the state. Two of the fiercest critics to the Foxconn development have set their sights on the Mount Pleasant Village Board. Kelly Gallagher, who has for years run the local Foxconn watchdog group A Better Mount Pleasant, is running for village president this spring. Fellow Mount Pleasant resident Kim Mahoney, who has fought for years to keep her home from being snapped up by the project, is also running for the village board. Last week, Mahoney and her husband moved their home away from the Foxconn development several miles north, settling with the village after a years-long dispute. They're joined by two other candidates to challenge incumbents who have been friendly to the Foxconn project, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. If elected, these challengers, who are opposed to the massive subsidies, disruption, and tactics caused by the Foxconn development, could opt to increase transparency of this highly secretive corporate dealing. Meanwhile, the race for Wisconsin Supreme Court, which is also on the ballot in April, is heating up too. Everett Mitchell, a Dane County judge and one of four candidates vying to replace retiring Chief Justice Patience Rogensack, is pushing back on an accusation of sexual assault made by his ex-wife more than a decade ago during heated custody proceedings. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that Marin Geis-Gill, who divorced Mitchell in 2007, claimed that Mitchell had undressed her and had sex without her consent after she took a sleeping pill. Mitchell tells the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel those accusations are false, and Mitchell was ultimately given primary placement of the child during those heated custody proceedings. In a statement sent to media today by the campaign, Mitchell and his ex-wife acknowledged the quote, renewed interest, unquote, in their divorce. They asked for privacy for their child and went on to write, quote, we also are both proud of who we are both as co-parents and individuals, and we know both of us did the best we could to carry ourselves with integrity during this difficult period in our marriage, unquote. A federal judge has dismissed a lawsuit between Edgewood High School and the city of Madison over the installation of field lights, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. Edgewood first filed a lawsuit over these lights in 2019, citing a religious discrimination issue after the Madison City Council voted to deny a permit to install light poles on a sports field. The council voted against the lights after they determined that they violated the school's master plan. That plan was amended in 2020, but the city still rejected approving the lights, deciding that they would adversely affect the surrounding neighborhood. The judge ruled that Edgewood did not show that they are discriminated against on religious grounds last Friday. 
The nonprofit community organization Centro Hispano got a major boost to their efforts to find a new home after a $250,000 donation from the Goodman Foundation yesterday. Centro Hispano is looking to build a new home on Madison's South Side to serve the organization's workforce and educational programs. Madison 365 reports that Centro Hispano is aiming to raise $20 million by the end of 2023, when they will celebrate their 40th anniversary. With the Goodman Foundation donation, the group has now raised almost $16 million. And now on to today's top stories. As 2023 begins, elected officials from across Wisconsin gathered in the state capitol building today as Governor Tony Evers was sworn in for a second term. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has the story. I state your name. I, Tony Evers. Swear that I will support. Swear that I will support. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. And the Constitution of the State of Wisconsin. And the Constitution of the State of Wisconsin. And I will faithfully and impartially. And I will faithfully and impartially. Discharge the duties of said office. Discharge the duties of said office. To the best of my ability. To the best of my ability. So help me God. So help me God. The Capitol Rotunda was adorned with American flags and red, white, and blue banners today as Tony Evers was officially sworn in as governor of Wisconsin. With performances by the Nina Community Band, the Milwaukee Children's Choir, the Indian Community School, and others, around 200 people gathered in the Rotunda to see how Governor Evers would spend his next four years leading the state. Evers won re-election last fall, beating out Republican challenger Tim Michaels by around 90,000 votes. After around an hour of music, ending with the singing of the National Anthem and the Pledge of Allegiance, MC of the event Shannon Hosley, president of the Stockbridge-Muncie Band of Mohican Indians, kicked off the event. Hosley started by acknowledging the many state leaders in attendance, including former governors Tommy Thompson, Scott McCallum, Jim Doyle, and Martin Schreiber, as well as legislative leadership, Republicans Voss and LeMayhew, and Democrats Neubauer and Agard. The new crop of legislators elected in November were sworn in later today at a separate ceremony. The first to be sworn in was new Republican state treasurer John Lieber. Lieber will be serving his first term as treasurer, having beaten out Democratic candidate Aaron Richardson for the seat in November. We need to work together in this divided government to accomplish something, and I look forward to getting things done. I, now, I ran on a platform of small government focusing on the duties of this office. I hope to make a positive difference in our state over my term. I plan to keep the office accessible to people, address financial concerns, and educate Wisconsinites on fiscal responsibility, including the state's role with your tax dollars. Next to be sworn in was Secretary of State Doug LaFollett, continuing to serve in the seat he's held for over 40 years. The usually sleepy office saw a tight race in November as Republican candidate Amy Loudenbeck, along with top GOP leaders, pushed for the position to have control over how elections are run in Wisconsin. LaFollette won re-election by just over 7,000 votes and spent his speech asking the legislature for additional help. I know that despite the hiccups in the past, we can work together to continue to serve the people of Wisconsin, allocating the resources and funding where they are most needed to ensure the continued success of every agency and every citizen of our great state. 
I'm hoping that the legislature will adopt the governor's recommendation that we be given the two additional staff in the office to keep up with the demand for service. Otherwise, we cannot provide that for people. The next to be sworn in was Attorney General Josh Call, who defeated Republican candidate Eric Toney by around 35,000 votes on a platform of protecting reproductive rights in Wisconsin. After Roe v. Wade was overturned last year and Wisconsin reverted to the 18th century abortion ban, Call filed a lawsuit looking to overturn the ban. After taking the oath of office surrounded by his family, Call called on state leaders to work together to keep Wisconsin safe. Now, over the course of our history, Wisconsin has been a leader, and it is time for us to lead the way again. In the shadow of a pandemic and an insurrection, we can light a new path. We can reject divide-and-conquer politics and commit to finding common ground for the common good of Wisconsinites. Then came newly elected Lieutenant Governor Sarah Rodriguez, who says that she will apply what she learned as a health care worker to the health of the state. As a clinician, I know that the medicine we give you, the procedures that we do, it is such a tiny fraction of how healthy we are. It is about where we live, the air we breathe, the water we drink, and if we've got a good paying job to put food on the table and to actually pay for those medications. Finally, Governor Tony Evers stood before state Supreme Court Justice Annette Ziegler to be sworn into his second term leading Wisconsin. Before he spoke on the future of Wisconsin, Evers was introduced by his granddaughter, Tessa Schoenecker. Schoenecker, who voted absentee for her grandfather in November while attending classes in Minnesota, pressed on the importance of people leading Wisconsin and not some political machine. Our leaders work for us, and it's our responsibility to remember that they're just people and make our voices heard on the issues that are important to us. For most people, it's a little harder than just texting your grandpa, but it's necessary nonetheless. I'm so hopeful for the future of our state and so excited for the possibilities of what we could achieve together. As Governor Evers took the podium to speak, he echoed the sentiment of everyone who spoke today, focusing on unity between the Democratic governor's office and the Republican-led legislature. Not one of us alone can undo the damage that's been caused to our democracy. Not one of us alone can mend the seams of this fraying fabric. Not one of us alone can restore trust in a system that has served our country for centuries. But together, we can, and together, we will. Late last month, Evers met with top GOP leaders for the first time in years, as the Associated Press reports that both sides are talking about trying to work together in the upcoming legislative session. During his speech, Evers also expressed optimism towards the enthusiasm of young voters, especially when it comes to climate change. You heard it from my granddaughter, because they believe, as I do, that science is real, that climate change is real, and they are demanding that we stop pretending that we can't create good-paying jobs and build sustainable infrastructure while conserving our natural resources, because they deserve a future where we can do both. With his inauguration, Governor Evers will now get to work putting together the state's biennial budget.
Evers's draft budget will be released within the coming weeks, and it will then head to the Republican-led legislature, who will then alter and eventually approve the budget for the next two years. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. I'm Tony Evers, and yes, I am jazzed as hell to be sworn in again as a 46th governor of the great state of Wisconsin. Wisconsin's birds are facing growing threats across the full range of their habitat. Each year, funds raised by the Great Wisconsin Birdathon fuel grants that support conservation efforts to sustain their populations in the state. WORT reporter Catherine Garbins brings news of one such effort to revive habitat for one of Wisconsin's most rapidly declining bird species. One morning this spring, as the last of the snow melts away and the buds and catkins appear on the treetops, you may awaken to a burst of bird song. If you're quick with your binoculars, you may spot a migrating vireo or warbler. It's during this time that the Natural Resources Foundation of Wisconsin holds its annual Great Wisconsin Birdathon, which raises money for the Bird Protection Fund. Grants from this fund support many aspects of bird conservation. So the Birdathon, uh, you know, we kind of talk about it as kind of like a marathon. I always joke that it's a little bit more fun because you don't have to run and you get to look at birds. That's Kate Williamson. She's the Director of Conservation Programs at the Natural Resources Foundation of Wisconsin. Really the point is that you can um, make a team, whether it's, you know, just you or you and your family or you and your coworkers or friends, um, and you pick a day to go out anytime between April 15th and June 15th. Um, and the goal is to both find as many bird species as you can on that day and to raise funds from your friends and family, kind of like you would for a marathon or a 5K race event, uh, encouraging folks to donate to that. During the Birdathon in 2022, 56 teams identified 250 species of birds to raise over $117,000. Grants are awarded each fall, and since 2009, over $1.3 million has been given to Wisconsin's highest priority bird conservation projects, both within the state and around the world. The endangered piping plover and the whooping cranes are examples of um, specific birds that get support from our Bird Protection Fund, uh, as well as the Connecticut Warbler, which is one of the fastest declining birds that we have here in the state. The Connecticut Warbler Conservation Project is one of the nine priority projects that received funding from the Bird Protection Fund in 2022. To learn more about this project, I spoke with Ryan Brady, a conservation biologist with the Wisconsin DNR. He's working to conserve the birds' breeding habitat in northern Wisconsin. The Connecticut warbler is a, it's a pretty uncommon warbler to begin with, and uh, the majority of the population is found in the boreal forests of southern Canada. And Wisconsin lies on the, the southern edge of its range and always has. Ryan says this bird is one of the most difficult songbirds in the state to study. This is in part because their breeding habitats are in remote areas. Um, but even in those areas where maybe they aren't as remote, the habitats are hard to get into. It might be a boggy lowland that has a lot of standing water in areas and is just a roadless area that's difficult to reach. Because they are secretive, ground-nesting birds, and the females are very quiet, they are difficult to detect. The one exception would really be uh, the males singing during the breeding season. They'll sit up 
maybe not out in the open, but they sit up and they have a very loud, distinctive song, and it carries very well. Um, so that's our best chance of really detecting whether Connecticut warblers are present in an area or not. And it's that singing behavior that we've used to uh, be able to monitor their numbers over time and determine that we've seen declines uh, in the state that are are well over 80%, um, probably more in the 90% uh, plus percent range if we had uh, better data. Ryan says that 30 or 40 years ago, there were likely thousands of Connecticut warblers in the state. Uh, And then those numbers really dropped uh, over the course of our two breeding bird atlas projects. So the first atlas project was conducted in the late 1990s. And the bird was found in roughly 60 survey blocks. And then we did our second breeding bird atlas in uh, 2015 to 2019, so about 20 years later. And we only found the bird in about 20 survey blocks, so a a pretty significant drop-off. Last year, they resurveyed historically high-quality Connecticut warbler habitat. And we found uh, zero birds. So even places that had had the bird five, ten years previous no longer had those when we did those surveys in 2021. Um, So that was a real red flag. And so that meant we were down to this last site around the Bayfield-Douglas County area of northwest Wisconsin, where we knew there were some birds. They surveyed that site in 2022. That's when we determined that we only had three singing males that we could find, um, which was even less than the the previous year uh, at that particular site. So you could see this just really steady and and steep drop-off that has occurred. And the only silver lining, (laughs) we found those three males. The the good news was they each had paired with a female, and we believe all of them successfully raised young. Now that they know things have declined so badly, they have to turn their attention to not just counting these birds, but doing something to stem their decline. Well, the the, the first thing we did um, was uh, make sure that we got a hold of the landowner who was hosting the the last remaining known Connecticut warblers. And uh, we did that, and they are aware that they are hosting this species and, and, you know, the plight. And while they are not legally bound in, in any way in terms of how they manage their property, they are, at least in the short term, cooperating on trying to protect those birds. So that was step one. It was kind of, okay, we have this last spot. Let's make sure we maintain that. Grants will support conservation efforts geared toward preserving and expanding the specialized habitat Connecticut warblers prefer. They like a closed canopy of trees, such as tamarack, blue spruce, or mature jack pine, and a mid-level that is free of dense shrubs. From knee-high down, they need plenty of ground cover for their nests and fledgling young, such as moss and low shrubs like blueberry. We've partnered with the Bayfield County Forest to uh, identify some sites that have prospective habitat for Connecticut warblers, and there are some. And 
we're doing a pilot project this fall where we are we went to a habitat stand that has a lot of the great structure that a Connecticut warbler likes for breeding, except one thing, it's too brushy in that mid-story, that eye level and above uh, area. So what we're doing is we're um, using some funds to um, conduct habitat management, i.e. remove brush out of that stand, and then we'll be looking for um, a population response next year. Hopefully the Connecticut warblers will then find it to their liking and, and utilize that stand. If this sort of habitat management works, Ryan says they can apply the practice in other places to continue creating attractive habitat for the Connecticut warbler in Wisconsin. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Katherine Garvins. The Connecticut warbler song used in this story was recorded by Brian Collins, Connecticut Warbler Project Technician. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge, here with my co-host, Christian Knutsen. Thanks for joining us. Up until 2017, it was illegal in the state of Wisconsin to sell home-baked goods like cookies or bread without a commercial license. But a court ruling over five years ago ruled the ban unconstitutional. And now a follow-up lawsuit has opened the way for other homemade foods as well. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Della Enns, a Wisconsin farmer and a member of the Wisconsin Cottage Food Association. Enns helped bring forward both the 2017 lawsuit on baked goods and the lawsuit decided earlier this week on other homemade foods. Now, what is the background of this lawsuit, Della? Why was it illegal to sell homemade food in Wisconsin and what made you want to file this lawsuit? Well, it goes back probably a decade or more, um, to when in Wisconsin uh, something called the Pickle Bill was passed, and that had bipartisan support. It was a bill that allowed people to sell canned goods, pickles, jams, and jellies, face-to-face in farmer's markets. And it, it was an easy pass through the legislature. We went to hearings about that with Wisconsin Farmers Union, and then the idea came up, well, baked goods are really safer than canned goods. We should, um, we should pass the same type of, of rule for, for farmers and, and individuals in the state to sell home baked goods face to face, just like the canned goods. And so with the help of Farmers Union, we proceeded to try to do that through the legislative avenues that had worked with the pickle bill and uh, were really excited, bipartisan support, um, and then it tanked. And we we tried, I think, about six years through the legislature to get this uh, cookie bill passed, and it, it kept stalling. Uh, Speaker Voss would not allow it on the floor for a vote, even though it had bipartisan support. And that's when uh, the Institute for Justice approached uh, 
three of us to see if we would be plaintiffs in a lawsuit that they felt that this was unconstitutional, that Wisconsin was only one of two states left in the nation that banned the sale of baked goods in this manner. And so we were like, yeah, sure, we we want to be a part of getting making this happen. And so it moved from the normal process through the state legislature to the judicial. And um, it took a few years of working on that case, but uh, we did win, I believe in 2017 in Lafayette County. And, um, and it was ruled unconstitutional for uh, the state to prohibit the sale of home baked goods, face-to-face sales, um, and made in home kitchens. So we were really excited about that. But as we had gone through the process, um, there were, there were so many things besides just baked goods. And the ruling said, uh, originally only products made with flour could be considered. And all of a sudden that just wiped out all kinds of other things that really are just as safe. So, uh, granola, rice crispy bars, um, any kind of candies, uh, lots of uh, dried foods, things like that that were perfectly safe were not covered. It was only for baked goods and baked goods with flour. So we did go back in court. We got that uh, clarified a little more for baked goods, but then this ruling um, is in, entails so much more. So it, it allows, it will allow a lot more opportunity for uh, farmers and, and entrepreneurs to sell product. And we're really excited. It's a great way to start the new year. Now, prior to this ruling, if someone wanted to, say, sell some candy at a farmer's market, what would they need to have done? Uh, and what, what sort of changed with this lawsuit? That's a really good question. Uh, with all of the baked good products and the cottage food, prior to this ruling, a person was required to have a a certified kitchen, a commercial kitchen, separate from their home kitchen. And if it was on your property, it was supposed to be separate from your house. So you're talking a big expense for somebody to have a, a separate kitchen on their own property or to go someplace and rent a commercial kitchen, which you, then you got to schlep all your stuff over there and and uh, make arrangements when a business isn't operating to to be able to use their kitchen and it's very complicated and expensive and uh, not not going to be profitable for home entrepreneurs. So there were just you know major barriers and now you can use your own kitchen and sell face to face. So that's removed those barriers. And someone, if they find they're very successful at what they do, they might later want to build a kitchen or open a storefront, but it gives someone an opportunity to test the waters or to have a smaller scale business. Now, one of the arguments made by the state of Wisconsin is that food safety is an issue with this. And I, I, I want to know what your response is to that. How is it made sure that these home goods are, are prepared safely? Well, you know, we've gone round about that uh, in all these different lawsuits. And for as long as I've lived in Wisconsin, a school can have a bake sale. Um, there are, are many different, you know, chili suppers and all kinds of things that are allowed and 
safety's never brought up in those instances. It's just assumed that it's okay. And that includes more kinds of things than this ruling covers. So um, I think the food safety issue has been uh, a little bit blown out of proportion. Um, we, uh, we don't have rules in place because this has gone through the judicial and not the legislature who makes rules. Um, we've been operating without specific rules, and that would be a good thing to happen if they're good rules. And so um, I don't see, I, I operate a bed and breakfast on my farm and the you do have to be inspected by the health department. Something like that would be really good for home entrepreneurs. Um, and it's interesting that I, I am in, inspected for a bed and breakfast, but still had all these restrictions on selling home baked goods. And now, why is this ruling so important to uh, to you and other home goods uh, and home food makers and sellers across the state? For me, as a farmer, um, we we grew organic vegetables, and we're always looking for more income streams and more products to sell to our customers and at, at markets. And so, uh, diversification helps a farm a lot. A small farm like ours, and I, I see this as as being able to help many people. During COVID, I know there were there were coffee shops that had to shut down and and bakeries, and the cookie bill actually helped them to maintain their customers by being able to sell baked goods during a time when businesses were shut down. So there are many reasons that that it's very important and will help help smaller people. One woman told me that she just wanted to make enough money selling her baked goods to pay their property taxes. And I think that those are things that that are super important and, and we need to support each other in our home businesses. Della, do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us? Well, I just, I, I'm really excited about this opportunity for so many more people to be able to uh, be creative and and have a business of their own. And I'm very grateful that uh, we won this lawsuit. And it was worth all the time and persistence that it took. I've been talking with Della Enns about the legal ruling stating that homemade foods may now be sold here in Wisconsin. Uh, Della, thank you so much for talking with me again. Oh, thank you. It's also the new year, a time to look forward to what's in store for 2023. That's why Friday 8 o'clock Buzz host Andy Moore welcomed Michael Wagner, professor at the UW-Madison School of Journalism, to gaze into the political crystal ball to try and predict what's to come in both state and national politics this year. I want to break down our discussion into national and state politics. That said, national partisan political agenda and state partisan agenda seem to be ever more and stubbornly tied together at the moment. Would you agree with that? In some ways, yes. I, I think that in many ways our, our politics is nationalized and what happens at the national level drives what happens at the state level. But there are also examples, and I would say actually there are examples especially in Wisconsin, where what happens at the state and local level becomes the the precursor to what happens in other states and what happens nationally. And I think both of those things are happening at the same time. 
which makes uh, our, our politics really, really complicated. You know, I mentioned Scott Walker just in passing a moment ago, but what you just said is true, and it can be applied to the Walker administration, the wedge For divide sure. and conquer politics, such as Professor Kramer wrote about, it predicted now we look back on it, predicted in, in somewhat of a, of, a, of a mild way, but a very concrete way, the entire Trump ordeal, did it not? Uh, in, in many ways, right? Uh, Kathy Kramer's book, The Politics of Resentment, uh, discusses how politicians creating resentments in the people saying some people are getting benefits that they don't deserve and, and you're not getting them and, and making those along rural and urban divides, which mm-hmm. are increasingly becoming Democrat versus Republican divides, really stokes anger, dissentment, resentment, uh, fear, and, and in many cases, just outright hatred mm-hmm. of the other side, which which leaves the door open for politicians uh, like mm-hmm. Governor Walker from a more traditional orientation or, or former President Trump from the modern orientation of uh, where, where Trump will just say anything uh, at any time to get out of any predicament. You know, Walker didn't do that, but Trump will say anything to, to advance his agenda. And mostly of what he talks about are pretend accomplishments and pretend reasons to hate the other side. And, and that is, is really hard to combat and makes politics increasingly toxic. What, what do um, the results of the midterms and a Biden executive administration mean for getting anything meaningful passed, especially between now and the 2024 election? I think it's unlikely to see a whole lot of meaningful things passed with the Republicans taking over the House and the Democrats maintaining a, a narrow hold on the Senate. And I think we have probably six months uh, to get something done before 2024 politics gets in the way. Uh, and so there there are some opportunities, I think, for, for compromise, uh, but not on what we would consider really major pieces of legislation. Professor Wagner, do you think we'll see the slow demise and eventual lights out on the election denial movement in the, in the, in the coming year? I, I don't think so. Uh, on the one hand, high-profile statewide candidates who were big-time election deniers basically lost uh, in, in the last election cycle. But more than 300 won across state and, and uh, congressional elections. And so uh, denying the election was not a poison pill for candidates. <laughs> there are hundreds of them now in office across the country, and many of them would love to change state election laws to make it more likely that a January 6th style behavior could be successful the second time around. So I, I, I don't think we've seen um, the death rattle of the election denial movement. I'm going to ask you to gaze into the crystal ball and maybe make an assumption even as you do so. But why do facts matter, right? But no, we're, we're, we're just working on intuition here. But what, what will conservatives stand for when and if Trump messaging becomes a, like a weird memory like the Tea Party movement became? Well, I, I think that you know, on the one hand, the Republicans didn't even advance a platform in the last presidential election. They just said, look at our one from last time. You know, and, and so yeah. there, there haven't been a, a spate of new ideas. Uh, but I do think that, you know, some of the classics, you know, you'd asked about classic rock albums. Some of the classics will come back, right? I think tax relief <laughs> is something we'll hear a lot about. Mm-hmm. I think traditional family values uh, are, are things we'll hear a lot about. And, and, and to me, I think those are the things we're likely to hear the most about. And then I also think that in terms of new issues, I, I think Republicans are going to start to hang their hat on some kind of, of social media uh, policy, probably around TikTok, because TikTok, of course, is, is uh, controlled by China. And so we're already seeing that in our state and nationally. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you mm-hmm. know, 
some kind of safety from China, social media um, mm-hmm. conversation will be a part of what we hear in the coming year. Is it a given that Biden will run for re-election? I don't think it's a given. Um, I, 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 you know, he is already our, our oldest president. And, you know, I, I think that on, on the one hand, he's passed and signed into law a great deal of fairly progressive legislation that, that his Democratic predecessor, Barack Obama, wasn't able to do. And uh, he held what could have been a catastrophic midterms to the point where it was just, you know, a relatively even, but but losing the House. And so politically, he's actually been far more successful than yeah. he gets credit for. Um, but I also think that he's a person who understands political headwinds and political tea leaves, and he's not beloved in the party, especially by activists. And so he, he may not run. But if he mm-hmm. does, I think he, he might face a, a, a primary challenge from the left, which is something you don't normally see when, when presidents run for re-election is, is, a, is a hard primary that, challenge. That would be unusual. Let, let's go back to what I call the political schizophrenia of the Badger State. How is it that Wisconsin can elect and, and then re-elect the likes of Tammy Baldwin one cycle and, and, and Ron Johnson the next? Well, one, I think the state is very evenly divided in terms of people's general political preferences, right? And so, you know, every election is, is that's a statewide election is, is going to be close because Wisconsinites are just divided about what it is they prefer. But how is it that Tammy Baldwin wins comfortably and Ron Johnson ekes out wins, I think, is, is, is a really difficult question. I think part of it hmm. has to do with Johnson being able to make some inroads in uh, communities that are traditionally uh, Democratic absolute <laughs> locks. And so, like, you know, mm-hmm. most Republican senators don't run ads about the work they do in the black community, but Ron Johnson does when, when he mm-hmm. runs for re-election, you know. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, which is kind of ironic, because at the same time, the ads he ran against Mandela Barnes were, you know, what many observers flat out called racist in, in the 2022 campaign, you know. But Johnson has strong constituent service uh, in, in parts of the state where he needs Republicans to show up and vote, and he's you know, a- able to make tiny inroads in other communities. And, and when an election is really, really close, three or four tiny inroads I- is, is really important. Michael Wagner is a professor in the UW-Madison School of Journalism. I'm going to tell listeners that I ask you to come prepared to make two bold national political predictions for 2023. All right, I didn't say bold, but I hope they are. So, Mike, let's do that now. What is your first national political prediction for 2023? I think that former President Trump will be indicted by the Justice Department. Um, I think that um, it probably won't happen very quickly. Merrick Garland is well known as an extremely methodical and slow-moving prosecutor. But what I see happening is very similar to what happened when he was taking the lead on the Oklahoma City bombing case, um, you know, back when uh, Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, you know, bombed the federal mm-hmm. building in, in, in Oklahoma. It's, it's extremely slow. It's extremely methodical. There are not leaks. I think if there were leaks, it would it would be um, we, we would be learning that maybe an indictment wasn't coming. But because there really aren't any, I, I think that an indictment is coming of President Trump. So I'd say that's prediction one. And uh, I'm fairly confident in that one. The second one, I'm less confident in, but you, you mm-hmm. asked for a bold prediction. And so, uh, you know, I think I'll make it an either. Either Joe Biden isn't going to run in, in the next election, mm-hmm. or if he does, he's going to face a serious primary challenge that, that if, he ekes it, if he makes his way through it, could hurt him in the general election. Let's shift gears into 2023 state politics. One huge, if not predictable, storyline will be the existing, there's almost $6.5 billion state 
budget surplus on the way to crafting, and I use that word lightly, crafting, a new biennial state budget. What are things to watch for during the state budget process, especially as it pertains to all that money, which is the political equivalent of like blood in the water for sharks? (laughs) Well, I think one thing to watch for is whether the post-election chatter that Speaker Voss and Governor Evers may begin occasionally talking to each other again materializes. Hmm. I think getting the two most important political leaders in state politics into a room and and, and, and talking about things is, is probably a, a very important pathway to progress. And so there's a lot, as you say, there's this huge surplus to think about. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's absolutely certain that Republicans will want that to go to tax relief. Democrats will likely want it to go to education, health care, and maybe, you know, and I'll, I'll get to this maybe later if you ask about state predictions about, you know, transportation. But I think that if, if those two get into a room and speak it, and Speaker Voss has, has said that he would like to see more of that. Yes. Governor Evers has indicated an openness to it, but a little more reticent about regular meetings. And and so we'll see we'll see if that materializes. Much it was made of a possible Evers veto of an entire budget bill last time around. Of course, he didn't mm-hmm. do it. You think that's going to be a story again? I think it's possible. I, I think if, if there aren't good conversations between the governor and the speaker, or if, you know, things break down, I I wouldn't at all be surprised to see Evers make that threat again. Uh, He improved his lot from the first election. He's he's more popular. He's doing better in Republican stronghold suburban areas. And so he has a little bit more political capital to, to wave around and say, people trust me to do this. So I think if he wants to make those kinds of um, threat. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, he he probably could go to that that well again, and could even veto it. I think, and maybe weather weather that storm, given that he is, you know, as far as political leaders go in our state, a, a fairly popular one. Is this a year we'll see Republican impatience within the caucus with Speaker Voss leadership? He he seemed to take a slight credibility hit in his caucus during the time he played footsie with Trump and and the steal the vote aftermath and all that. I think it's possible. Um, the Republicans improved their position in the state uh, legislature, and, and a lot of times when majorities grow, you would think, oh, this is the time the party's going to get whatever they want. and, and move. But oftentimes that size brings with it a, d- a diverse array of views hmm. and actually makes it more difficult to govern. Political scientists call it conditional party government, and, and huh. one of the conditions of party government is that the backbenchers trust the leaders. But a lot of the backbenchers in the Wisconsin legislature are far more extreme than Speaker Voss. And, and are far more vocal about their distrust of him. And, and, and so it, it could be that he has more trouble wrangling Republicans in the legislature, in the growing majority, uh, that, than he has uh, in, in sessions past. It's interesting, it, c- contemplating the larger majority, bringing in perhaps more moderation. And Amy Loudenbeck comes to mind, Secretary of State winner, who, who, who and, and of course that primary, everyone was concerned about a Republican impulse to give authority to the State Elections Commission over to the Secretary of State. I, and, and if I'm not mistaken, I, I believe that she was not in favor of that. Yeah, you know, I, I, think, I think we're going to see more proposals from the legislature to find ways to take election decision-making power away from offices that are currently uh, held by Democrats. Uh, and and so I think we'll, we'll we'll see more of that I think in Wisconsin regardless of of the Secretary of State's office or or other election results I I think that it's likely we'll see more pushes to weaken current institutions about how elections work and strengthen opportunities for more partisan offices to take control. What is uh, the first of your two state 
political predictions for 2023, Mike? Um, I, I would say the, the first is railroads and, and, and train transportation is going to come back into Wisconsin pol- political conversation. I, I think that there's, I think the Democrats see opportunities for bringing some of these issues back, and um, I think we, we may see more, more of that. Uh, and then I would say um, the, the second will be that the, the political left is, I would say, slight, this is a, you know, this is barely a coin flip prediction, but it's slightly more likely than the political right to get the Supreme Court candidate they want elected in the state, which would probably have the biggest change um, in, in state politics that, that we've seen, you know, short of Governor Evers' first election you know, c- coming to our state. So, um, but, but I think that, that's going to be a really close race, but I, I would say right now, the Democrats have the, the slight advantage in the nonpartisan Wisconsin state Supreme Court race. That was Andy Moore on the Friday 8 o'clock buzz talking with UW-Madison School of Journalism professor Michael Wagner about his predictions for the political landscape in 2023. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors Catherine Garvins and Andy Moore with the 8 o'clock buzz. Dave Lorenzen engineered the show. Nate Wagehout produced this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Nick Dodge. Up next is Spanish language news with En Nuestro Patio. Good night and Happy New Year.